You're going to want a Bible this morning. We're going to do what we do at Grace and uh, open God's Word and see what He might be speaking in to us uh, this week. So we are going to dive into Philippians as we are really beginning our new series uh, going through this amazing letter of Paul. So you, if you have a Bible, go and open up to Philippians chapter 1. If you need one, just slip up a hand. We've got plenty of Bibles. We'll pass them out. Get one in your hand so you can follow along with us. And while you uh, get a Bible or, or opening up your Bible, uh, just another reminder that we have a few more of these scripture journals that I mentioned last week uh, up in the coffee shop. And uh, they're just a great resource, a great tool for your own personal Bible study. Uh, it's just, uh, it is the book, it is only the book of Philippians and then just pages uh, alongside of it to write questions, insights, what God is speaking to you. And as we say every week, Way more important than anything that I could have to say from, from up here is what God wants to be speaking into your life the rest of the week through his word. So dive in uh, uh, to uh, this life-giving word of God. So Philippians is this powerful, powerful letter. Some call it the joy book because uh, in it uh, that Paul talks so much about joy. Rejoice, and I'll say it again, rejoice. And part of the, uh, the, uh, the amazing aspect of how much joy exudes out of this little letter is that uh, Paul wrote it while sitting in a prison cell. If you remember, if you were with us last week, uh, we looked at Acts 16 and uh, the story of Paul planting that little church in that city called Philippi, the first church planted in Europe Planted in this uh, wealthy Greek business lady named Lydia in her, in her home. And then to uh, that, that wealthy household, God adds uh, a slave girl that has a miraculous encounter with Jesus that sets her free. And then adds to that crazy mix a Roman jailer who encounters the power and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And out of these three that we know of, uh, di this d diverse community, God establishes a community of faith in this little town, united around Jesus Christ. Now, 11 years have passed since the events of Acts chapter 16. Paul finds himself in prison again, in, uh, most likely in Rome, and he's writing a letter back to this church because word has gotten to him that this little house church that has become this flourishing community of faith, known for their sacrificial generosity, for their love and their service, for their faith, and the way that they embody the grace of Jesus. They become known around the Roman world, and yet at the same time, the pressures of the culture around them are beginning to threaten the unity of the church within. It's also why I feel so strongly for us as a church community that these words, though written almost 2,000 years ago, are just as powerful and relevant for us today. That God uniting a diverse community of faith from all different backgrounds and stories and bringing us together around the reality of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. A God who has saved us and set us free. Breathed into our souls 
the gift of the Holy Spirit that we could live this transformed, fruitful life in Christ. And yet at the same time, even rooted in that reality, how easy is it for the pressures of this world and the chaos and the conflict that surrounds us in our community and around the nation to so quickly and easily divide what God is doing from within. Amen? So Paul writes this letter reminding them of who they are in Christ, who they belong to, the work that God has done for them in Jesus, and the work that he is yet to do through them. So will you stand with me as we read this first part of the scriptures. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The word of God. You may be seated. Paul's desire for this church community is that they would live into the abundant life of Christ. That they would live fruitful lives, lives of depth and impact, of substance and significance filled with the fruit of righteousness that he says, confident of this, that, that he who began a good work will carry it out to the day of Christ Jesus. You wonder if as he's writing these letters, he's remembering the words of Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus, talking to the disciples, uh, describes himself as a good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and leads them forward, that his sheep know his voice and follow after him. But then uh, Jesus says there's another voice that's competing for the heart and the attention of the sheep. The voice of the thief. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. That there really is an enemy out there that wants to undermine your faith and ruin your lives. And destroy what God is wanting to do in and through you. But then Jesus continues, but I have come, Jesus says, that you might have life and life to the full. Life in abundance, flourishing life. Now, who doesn't want that? Amen? 
And, and so Paul, remembering these words of Jesus and, and, and writing his own prayer for these, for these believers in Philippi, this desire that the fruit of God, the abundance of God would flow up out in and out of their lives. And so Philippians becomes a, a, a letter about how to live into this fruitful life in Christ. The abundant ways of Jesus. So we said that Philippians has been called the joy letter. But I think that's actually a misnomer. Because yes, Paul does talk about joy a lot throughout the book. But there's one thing that Paul talks about more than anything else. Just in your own Bible, go on and pull your Bible out. You know, look at that first chapter there. And kind of a, a pop quiz here. Just begin to count. How many times in the first chapter of Philippians does Paul write the words either Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? All four are the same thing. Just go do a quick count. Somebody like, what, what do you find? Just start going through the verses. How often does Paul in that first chapter... Mention Jesus. It's close. Anybody got it? 18. That's right. 18 times in 30 verses, Paul writes the name Jesus. So, yes, it is a joy book, but more than that, it is a Jesus book. Everything in Philippians, the, 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 the uh, invitation into this abundant, flourishing life, this reminder of their identity and their calling, all of that is centered and rooted in Jesus Christ. And that's critical that we remember. Because sometimes we can get this mindset that, that the abundance that Jesus is inviting us into, that it's about us. And though, yes, we are the recipients of divine grace and mercy that we don't deserve, it's not about you, it's not about me. It's about who? It's about who? Jesus. Yeah, let's work on that. Who is this about? Jesus, yeah. I mean, that's one of those, like, Sunday school answers that you should just, I mean, that's not even a trick question. It's about Jesus. And so let's look at these words and see if we can get some clues into this abundant Jesus-centered life that Paul is reminding them of. Even from the beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We find abundant life when we give our lives away. Let's say that again. We find abundant life when we give our lives away. For the sake of someone else. Timothy, we find out, we, we, we read about for the first time in Acts 16. And he's, he's mentioned at the beginning. What we know about Timothy is that uh, his father was a Greek, most likely wasn't a believer. But that um, his grandmother and his mom were devout followers of Jesus. In fact, uh, it says that Timothy learned the scriptures uh, sitting with his grandmother. Which I think is just a beautiful word to any grandparents sitting out there. We're going to celebrate some baptisms here in man. I know some grandparents that have joined us today. Uh, is is the, the amazing role a grandparent can play in a kid's life. And so here I have Timothy, who's now a hero of the faith, that first learns the scripture sitting with his grandmother. And uh, and but when we when we find when we first discover Timothy, he is just a, a young boy. 
that has learned the scriptures from his mom and his grandma, but there's something in Timothy that Paul recognizes. They just see some potential in that kid, a special heart for Jesus, a passion for the faith. And so he invites Timothy to come along and, jo and join him in this cohort of, other, uh, of this missionary band that's making their way across Asia into Europe. But from that point, we don't really hear much more about Timothy in that part of Acts. He kind of is just following in uh, the shadow of Paul. But here we see at the beginning of this letter that Timothy has moved from being a disciple of Paul, learning about Jesus, to being a partner with Paul, serving Jesus. Paul and Timothy. But then we see a little bit later in the letter that he is not just simply that Timothy has moved from being a disciple of Paul or of Christ with Paul uh, to becoming a partner of Paul, but that he is being sent as an empowered leader. Look at uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Paul writes, You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So we see that, that Timothy learning at Paul's shoulder, now ministering alongside of Paul, is, now, is then being sent from Paul. And later, we'll get two more letters that Paul writes explicitly to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, pretty uh, easy names to remember. But in, in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul will write that uh, he'll say, the things that you've learned from me entrust to other men who will then teach others to do the same. In other words, Timothy moves from being a disciple to being a, uh, uh, to being a partner with Paul to being an empowered leader to becoming a disciple maker. Now, why do I say all that? Because if we want to find abundant life in Christ, it comes in giving our life away. In the same way that we see Paul modeling with Timothy. And we begin with the end in mind. That not simply do we want to see those that we're pouring our lives out into uh, growing in their faith. And this is just as much a model for parenting as it is for discipleship. Yes, we want to see our children grow. We want to see them established in faith. But ultimately, we want to release our children. The real grace and gift of parenting is when we empower our children to go enter into this world to become their own humans. We're living into that right now. Last week, we took my daughter to start her sophomore year of college. And we're in a different season of life as parents. We're, we're, we're launching her, releasing her for her to, to make her own decisions as a young adult, to find her own faith and her sense of, of calling and who God has made her to be. And we still have a role to play, but it's not the role that we played when she was a child. In the same way as spiritual mothers and fathers, that as we pour our lives into the next generation and we see them grow in their faith, this was the end in mind that we will empower to release them so that they might go and do the same. And maybe, hopefully, even better than we did. And so we see in these first three words, this model of discipleship, of, of a life lived for the sake of somebody else, that we find abundant life when we give our lives away. And it's an apprenticeship model. It's not just come and learn information from me, 
but watch me. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul will write. It takes him on trips. It takes him into scary situations so that Timothy can learn to follow and trust Jesus for himself. Who is God inviting you to apprentice in the ways of Jesus? Because that is the fruitful life he's inviting you into. Not just the person sitting next to you, but any of us in this room that have pledged allegiance to King Jesus as Lord, the gift and the calling that you're invited into is to pour your life out for the sake of somebody else. What a high privilege. And then look at this identity statement that Paul makes. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. At the time, Paul is like a superhero of the faith. He's already launched this, uh, this disciple-making, church-planting movement. He's on his second uh, world tour and going around to other cities. He's launching churches in Europe, in Asia that are spreading and launching other churches. I mean, Paul is a, a, a giant of the faith. And so when he writes this letter, does he write, Paul and Timothy, leader of the church. Paul and Timothy, spiritual gurus that you should listen to. Paul and Timothy, CEO. No, what is he right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And that word is actually even stronger than we, we may hear in the English. It's the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which literally is translated as bondservant or slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, in the Roman world, uh, it would have been really well known uh, how slavery worked in that culture. And so all Paul is doing is, is he's borrowing from the context in which he is these, uh, these Roman ideas and then redeeming them and applying them in a new way in the kingdom of God. And so in the Roman world, most, uh, most slaves ended up being enslaved people because they were prisoners of war. They were from the, the Roman armies conquering all the land of that known world, and they would bring back uh, the, their uh, people that lived in those communities, and they would, they would serve in the households of Roman leaders. The other way that you're most likely to end up uh, becoming a doulos, a bond servant, is, uh, is because you had a debt that you couldn't pay, like an indentured, indentured servant. And, uh, and you would be, uh, there's the doulos and there's the kyrios, the lord or the master that you are assigned to. And you would be in the service of, at the mercy of your master until you paid off your debt. Now for most doulos, that's the rest of their life. Because there's, that's a debt they cannot ever pay back. And so they are in service to their master, to their kyrios, until, until death. But there were a few, a handful that we know of that had ended up 10, 15, 20 years down the road serving their agreed upon time to pay off their debt that they now have the opportunity to be set free, to enter back into Roman society as a freedman or freedwoman who then choose because of loyalty and allegiance to the household where they had served to put them ba themselves back underneath their curios their master, their Lord, to bond themselves back to that family. And so it is with all of that imagery that Paul takes this word as prisoners of war, 
brought from a hostile territory into a home as, as indentured servants who have a debt that they can never pay back or as freed people who choose to serve their master. Taking all of that imagery, Paul packs it into this word of identity. This is who we are. We are servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. Those who have been ransomed in war, those who have a debt to God that we can never pay back, and those who have chosen to give our allegiance, our life, and our loyalty to Jesus Christ as our master, our kyrios, our Lord. But what a good king we serve. I mean, it's not just any curios that Paul is pledging his life, surrendering his life to and under. It's not just any king that, that takes his servants and, and sacrifices them to, to, for his victories. But instead we have a king who sacrificed his own life for the victory of his servants. This is the king we serve. A king whose sacrificial love knows no end, whose desire is for his children to live flourishing, abundant lives, realigned with the ways that God created this world. And Paul says that we have surrendered everything to this king. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus in Philippi. We said that as we get into this book, we'll see that there's some fractures beginning to form in this diverse community that God has brought together around Jesus. And so Paul's reminding them of who they belong to and what unites them to all the saints. Not just a handful or the spiritually elite or the ones who are behaving themselves, but to all of you. And then he calls this whole congregation, this whole community of faith there in Philippi, saints. This is a powerful word. The, the root of the word is, is where we get the word holy, to be set apart. It's the Greek word hagios, a, a holy one, a holy person. The ancient root of that word actually, it carries with it this idea of an object of awe, worthy of reverence. And so you can see why this word would get applied mostly, foremost, to, to God himself, the all-knowing, all-powerful creator God of this universe, holy, set apart, unlike any other, reverent, all-worthy, Worthy of our praise, this holy God that in Christ has made his people holy, set apart, unique, something sacred, beautiful. Now, in the Old Testament, this idea of holiness, first God being holy and then calling for himself, setting apart a people to be holy. 
God's intent originally was that as he calls them to be set apart, he, he gave them this law to follow that would make them distinct from the other people around them. There were some dietary restrictions, but most of the law uh, dealt with how they were to live in community and how they were to treat the people around them, how to care for the oppressed and the marginalized, how to take care of the poor, how to be a people of loving sacrifice and covenant so they could shine as light to the nation that would reveal the glory and the goodness of God. They were set apart wholly for the glory of God so that other people can know how good God is. But what they had done is they had taken this idea of holiness, being set apart to reveal God's glory for the sake of the world, and instead they had turned it to be they were set apart against the world. And so to the laws that God had given them, they added all kinds of sub-clauses. And so each individual law would have uh, dozens, if not a hundreds of, of other sort of uh, subtexts of like, okay, if you really want to be set apart, you got to do this and this and this and make sure you never do this and don't do this and, uh, and make sure that you follow all of these standards so that the rest of the world will know that you're different than them. But that wasn't God's point. God's point was that they would be set apart to reveal God's goodness so the rest of the world would know the glory of God. And so Jesus actually picks up on this whole theme and, and to redeem all of that. In John 17, when he's praying for the believers uh, or for his disciples right before he goes to the cross, and then he begins to pray for the people that would, that would begin to follow him through their message. In other words, praying for us. And what he says is, God, I'm not praying that you take them out of this world. I'm praying that you are with them and in them in this world. See, sometimes I think as Christians, we can get into an Old Testament mindset where we're to remove ourselves from this world. It's like us against the world. When instead, God has set us apart for the sake of the world. That our loving sacrifice, our generosity and our kindness, the way that we bless when we're cursed, the, the way that we, that we step into the darkness and our light and hope and peace and love and grace, the way we extend forgiveness when it's undeserved because we know the mercy of God for ourselves, the way that we, we, we lay down our lives for the people that step on our backs, the way we release our rights in order to lift up somebody else, the way that we, that we die to ourselves so that somebody else can find life. And in the world that is holy, different, set apart and unique so that this world can discover the goodness and the power and the grace of God. Amen? That is who you are or who you're called to be. Not as those set against the world, but those who have been set apart for the sake of the world. But Paul writes to all the saints, you are all together set apart by God, by God's grace for God's purposes. In Christ Jesus. He is the one who unites us. He is the one who sets us free. He is the one who is with us. But they're not just in Christ Jesus, but they're also at Philippi. We find them in two, uh, he names two uh, locations, so to speak. First and foremost, they're in Christ Jesus. No matter where they go or whatever their circumstances end up being, 
They're defined by Christ, changed by Christ, transformed by Christ. But they also are at Philippi. There are people set apart and set in a place. And so are you. And your place matters. It is not by accident that you were born into the family that you were born into. It's not by accident that you woke up this morning in Monroe, Georgia, or Walton County. It's not by accident that you will show up tomorrow morning at your school or your office, your workplace. Your people called to be in Christ in a place. And so the question becomes, is the place that God has set you better because you're there? And we should be asking this question as a church, shouldn't we? Right? As a community of believers. Is Monroe, is Walton County better because the people of Grace Monroe were here? Is your neighborhood better because you live there? Is your office better, more in line with the ways of the kingdom, more at peace, with more hope, a place of blessing, a place of joy, a place of love and sacrifice and service? Because you're there. Your classroom. Your soccer team. What is the place that God has set you? And when we begin to think this way, that at first I'm in Christ, and then in Christ I'm in a place, and that place matters, it changes everything. All of a sudden, it's not just a staff meeting anymore. It's not just a project proposal. It's not just a, a curriculum I'm writing. It's not just a neighbor that I'm meeting on the street or a dog that I'm taking for a walk. It's not just an errand I need to run or a dinner that I'm eating. And it's not to place this incredible pressure that in every moment, okay, God, what are you, you, know, what are you calling me to do? It's an invitation to say, okay, God, what do you have? Like, what do you have? I get to wake up in the morning, the God of this universe fills my soul by his Holy Spirit and then sends me out to be in a place for him and with him. It also means, not just in the positive, but when I face the negative, I'm not alone. When it feels like the world is crashing around me. When we get the bad news or, or business tanks or that kid is a jerk. Some of you started school this week. You're not alone. You're not alone. The God of this universe that sees you and knows you and loves you and has set you apart in Christ and filled you with his spirit is with you even in the most tragic, scary, grief-filled moments of our lives. Just in the same way that he is with us in our celebrations and our hopes and our dreams. This changes Everything. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, and you'll see this continued calling of God to be a people who serve, that abundant life is found in giving our lives away. Even So at some point in the last 11 years, they've established roles within the church to help lead the church. But even the language Paul uses to describe leadership are languages of service. Overseer 
the word there for overseer is most closely related to shepherds. Those who are responsible for caring for, watching over, tending a flock. And the word there that's translated deacon is literally the word diakonos in the, in the Greek. And, and it is a waiter at a table. The guy or the girl that serves the food. The leadership positions in the kingdom of God, in the community of faith, not just like the organizational, you know, church as an institution, but the, the congregation are called to lead to serve. And Paul even models this from the beginning, doesn't he? Placing himself first and foremost as the, as the servant under the chief servant Christ. If you find yourself in a position of authority or responsibility or leadership, your primary role is to serve, to lower yourself, to lift up another which is completely countercultural. When leadership is something we attain in order to get what we want and have other people do what we want them to do. And then his hope for them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace the overwhelming, abundant, immeasurable, undeserved mercy of God and peace. And Paul, I mean, he was a devout uh, Jewish leader before he encountered Jesus. He's not just thinking the word peace from the Greek mindset, which literally just means uh, the absence of conflict. No, he's thinking about it from a Jewish mindset. And for him, peace isn't simply not being at war. Peace, shalom, is the word. It's wholeness. Everything is as it should be. I mean, this is what your soul is craving. Shalom. Wholeness. First and foremost, our souls to be whole, restored, in God, but also in our relationships, relational wholeness, emotional wholeness, physical wholeness. And yes, we now live in the, the now but the not yet of the kingdom, having entered in to Christ Jesus in this kingdom way of life and discovering this abundant, flourishing life that is truly life. But at the same time, we live in a broken and sinful world and we wait for the day as Paul will later write in Philippians, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, when he finally and forever crushes sin and death and restores and redeems all things and brings his children to be able to stare into the face of Jesus face to face, will we be made forever whole. But until then, we have a God who is at work in us and through us, moving us into greater wholeness and freedom, and then through us, bringing wholeness and freedom into this world and the places that he's called us. That's the invitation.
And so, today we have the privilege of baptizing a couple of folks that have decided to surrender their lives to Christ, to make that decision, to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, receiving the forgiveness of God in Christ, being filled by the Spirit of God, and then being sent out. We're going to worship in just a moment for just a moment and invite you into communion. That last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples when he took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so for those of you that have placed your faith in Christ, surrendered Jesus as Lord and King, communion becomes the symbolic act of remembering the presence of God with you and in you in Christ Jesus. And then Jesus took this cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of a new covenant, new relationship with God. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion, we remember, we receive again, afresh, the presence of God in Christ and the forgiveness of God in Christ. And the community of faith, as Paul's writing to Philippi and as those words still speak into our community today, that community of faith centered in Christ Jesus, these two acts, communion and baptism, were what defined them as God's people in whatever place he had called them. And so today we get to celebrate that together, which is pretty cool. And so we're gonna worship, we invite you into communion, and then we will baptize our friends. And I also want to say, if you're on the fence on this whole Jesus thing, or you're recognizing in your own life that you've made yourself king, which sometimes feels like it works for a minute, but then uh, we end up usually doing a terrible job at it, and you're recognizing right now that you need Jesus, that you've never surrendered your life to Christ, received the forgiveness of God in Jesus. Don't let this moment pass. Even as we remember communion and we celebrate baptism, what is God inviting you into? And for some of you, that may be to surrender your life to him for the first time. And if that's you, when we pause in just a moment, take communion, I'll be standing right over there. I would love to pray with you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is the most important all-defining decision that you could possibly make that changes everything. And for some of you that have been walking with Jesus, maybe you've just gotten stagnant, bored, satisfied with showing up at church, church for an hour a week or a month, depending on your frequency, and realizing that God is calling you into so much more a vibrant relationship with him, Christ in you, Christ for you, and Christ through you. And maybe God's inviting you to renew your faith, renew your allegiance. And so I encourage you to just come and kneel and just repent. Repent means to simply to change our way, to just be honest with God. God, this is where I am. If I'm honest, I've been living pretty much for myself. 
even as a Christian. God, will you show, what it, show me what it means to live my life for the sake of others? And there's some of you, you've been learning to walk with God, you're growing in your faith, but God is calling you to pour out your life for somebody else. And you may right now even have a name that's coming to mind or a team or seventh grade boys. And I will say this, if God is calling somebody to mind that he's inviting you to invest in their spiritual journey, and the next thought you have is, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. That's not me. That may just be God inviting you to do something that's bigger than, your li- than you. Investing your life in something that's bigger than your life, something that you need him to be able to accomplish. So I'd encourage you, don't listen to the second voice. Obey the first. So I want to pray for us. I invite you to just come kneel, to confess, to be with Jesus, to take communion, to minister to one another, to pray for each other. So just close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words that were written almost 2,000 years ago that are still just as powerful and true and applicable and relevant in our lives today. You are still king. You are Lord. May we live as your servants. May we live as saints. May we live in the place that you've called us. Lord, for any here that don't know you, I pray that they would hear you calling them by name. Say, you stand at the door of our heart and knock. That any that open that door, you'll come in and dine with them. And so if there's any now, Lord, they're inviting you into their heart, into their life for the first time. May your grace cover them. May your forgiveness set them free. If that's you, I invite you to come forward. And Lord, for your sons and daughters. Will you just speak a word into their hearts even right now? What do you want them to know, God? What are you inviting them into? What is that next step of faith that you're challenging them to take? you speak by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we worship you. God, we receive from you. May we walk with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.